Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. The word of the Lord. We, uh, we're starting in on a new sermon series here because today is the first Sunday in Lent. Uh, many of you come from traditions where the thing like Lent is not uh, practiced or celebrated, so just a brief background on it. Uh, Lent is the 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading up to Easter. It's basically six weeks leading up to Easter. In the historic church, it was used as a season of preparation for baptism, and part of the reason why they took the final weeks, if you would, to prepare for baptism was because they knew how costly it would be for you to be a Christian, especially in the first centuries. And they essentially wanted to say, do you mean it? Are you sure you want to do this? It will cost you. It's also a time of preparation in our own lives. The way that the church has used it for years is to have a season of focusing on the cross because, again, historically, it's been a season when you've looked at the journey of Jesus as he points towards Jerusalem and heads towards his own cross. And so we, either in our readings or devotions, symbolically carry on the same practices. So it's a season of repentance and self-examination, sometimes carrying on new disciplines, but ultimately, it's a season pointing to the cross. And that's why the series that we're doing starting this week and leading up to Easter is a perfect series to be doing in the weeks leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection. We're looking at Mark 8 through 16, a series I'm calling The Way of the Cross because it's from Mark 8 that Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem and I am going to die. Will you follow me? The way that the Gospel of Mark is laid out is the first seven or eight chapters are about who is Jesus. And the things that he does are trying to describe who he is. I am Jesus. And people are wondering, who is he? The last eight chapters are Jesus declaring through his actions and words why he came. This is my purpose. 
This is my identity, and now this is my purpose. And we're looking at Christ's purpose. And we get Christ's purpose very clearly in verses 31 and 32 of the passage that we read. As Jesus telling his disciples for the second time, here's what I have come to do. You guys want to know why I'm here? Here's what I've come to do. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed after three days, he will rise again. My purpose is to be rejected by all of my people and to be killed. And the disciples, it says, do not understand. They consistently don't get it. Part of the reason they don't understand is because they had a view of the Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come to rule and to reign, to set up a kingdom, to throw out enemies, and they would be a part of that. And this idea of being rejected by your people and dying had nothing to do with any of their expectations. I love, as many of you know, the disciples because they give us hope for our own stupidity. The very next verses give us the the extent of their stupidity. As they were walking along, just after Jesus has said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, they say, it says, they were arguing with each other. Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And they're like, oh, it was uh, stuff. I don't know, it's unimportant. And he knew they were arguing about which of them was the greatest or would be the greatest. And you have to wonder, like, literally who has these arguments? Are there actual adults walking around saying, no, I'm the greatest? No, no, I am. No, 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 it's me. I mean, they were essentially talking about the kingdom of God. And there were these views on who would get to sit where and what roles and places they were going to have. But it's like, who's going to be chief of staff? Who gets to be vice president? It's like a bunch of kids setting up a club or something like that. And they're trying to argue over who gets what parts. I feel like I stopped having these arguments in third grade. We used to have these arguments when I was on the elementary school playground. And the arguments were about whose dad could beat up whose dad. Literally, that was the argument. I have no idea why we argued that. And I had, I had the, like, I was certain my dad could beat up other dads, but if not, if not, I had a cousin. And so this was the, the way it worked, is you would say something like this, well, my dad's stronger than your dad because of X, Y, and Z. And then I would pull the, the trump card of my cousin. See, I had a cousin who was 10 years older, and it's possible that his uncle, his father, my uncle, had... Um, nefarious ties, I guess you might say, connections in places you wouldn't want to know. Plus, my cousin hung around with all the bad kids. And they were tough, and they were athletes, and they were all 17 and 18. And I was eight, right? So if my dad can't beat up your dad, my cousins are going to come, and his friends, and they're going to beat up your dad. (laughs) But somewhere about fifth grade, that should stop. Jesus is saying, I have come to be rejected and to die. And the disciples are arguing about who gets to ride shotgun. What position? Who's going to get recognition? Jesus lays out his agenda in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. 
and servant of all. Humbling yourself, elevating others, prioritizing their needs is the way not only to love your neighbor, but also to make God visible in this world. God will be made visible not through your power, but through your weakness. Not through you having position, but through you humbling yourself, serving others. That is the way to greatness, Jesus says. He's pushing them because he wants them to see how serious the calling is to be a disciple of his. We get that very explicitly in the amputation phrase. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to go into the kingdom of God lame, without the leg, without the eye, than to go to hell. This is essentially a a hyperbolic metaphor, but Jesus is trying to lay out the seriousness of it. If you have cancer in your leg and the doctor says we have to cut it off, you will weigh that, but in the end, you'll probably cut it off. As as harsh as that is, we do that with cancer because we don't want it to spread. But when it comes to our sin, we argue with the doctor. No, no, no. I can manage the pain. Is there any medicine I can take? It will spread. It will kill your soul, Jesus is saying. But he's not just talking about sin in the sense of vices, because I think that's how we've often read this passage, but in the Gospel of Mark, the way that this is being described is not just vices like, uh, like greed or lust or a temper or envy. Cut those out. Take them. It's true. Take them very seriously. But he basically means deal with anything that gets in the way of me. Being a disciple will cost you. Hassan can tell you about that. It's true. You have to do nothing, nothing to inherit eternal life. But to be a disciple will cost you everything. And Jesus is saying in this passage, the kingdom of God is more important than whatever you think you cannot live without. There's no desire, no pursuit, no pleasure, nothing you can place your life in that is worth having more than Christ. And throughout this whole passage, Jesus is is laying out his kingdom, his kingdom, and Jesus' kingdom turns every other kingdom's values upside down. In first century Judaism, which the disciples were first century Jews, Jesus was a first century Jew, greatness, being great, was defined by having status and honor. So, Status and social rank, where you fit within the community, was the primary concern of nearly every person. It was their goal in life to figure that out and to, and to climb that social status ladder if you could. The rabbinic writings of the first, second, and third century are constantly dealing with how you interact with superiors and inferiors. 
They had a whole set of writings about where you were to sit at meals, where you were to sit in worship, depending on your rank in society, and literally who sat where in heaven. Who is writing about where you get to sit in heaven? You're in heaven. It's good. But they had to figure out who will be here and who here. And I mean, they were probably talking about like Moses and Elijah and David and Jeremiah. Who, where were the prophets and the lawgivers? Where will they sit? But in doing so, they're also trying to figure out, I wonder how close I'll be to the main table. Will I be at the kids' table? Will I be at the main table? You're at the banquet. But they're worried about where they're sitting. The ancient world was divided up in a hierarchy. The, the ancient Jewish world, Roman world, Greek world, had a hierarchy built on male headship. The patriarch sat up at the top. Beneath him were the dependents, his sons. Beneath them were the people that, that were dependent on them because they were rich. They were women and slaves and children, probably least of all, because they usually had a, a household slave who would oversee them until they were an adult. There was a complete order, and everyone knew where everyone stood in their social hierarchy. And your ambition, your goal in life, was to gain greater status and recognition, and therefore to have higher places of honor in the community. You wanted to be that sort of person. One of the primary ways you did that was by hosting other prominent people. You hosted prominent people, and it brought honor to you, and you brought honor to them by hosting them, and it was this reciprocal honor hosting status thing. So when Jesus, in verse 37, says, here's what my kingdom is about. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He's talking about something that is completely unimaginable in their way of approaching life. He's not just saying receive little children. He's saying, will you receive the least, the lowest on the social ladder? In a culture that only values hierarchy and social status, will you associate with, eat with, honor, elevate, give significance and worth and time to the lowest and the least and the poor and the sick and the outcast? If not, you're not my disciple. A first century Jew had this view. Greatness was having status in the community and the honor it confers. But Jesus comes along and says, greatness is surrendering all of your status ambitions and giving honor even to the least. Because in the kingdom of God, all of your culture's priorities of rank and status no longer matter. But I think the kingdom of Jesus challenges every culture, and it challenges every person. At our root, we all desire greatness. You may not think you desire greatness, but I think you do. We all desire greatness because we all desire to matter. We have a basic need of recognition and to be noticed. We actually all have this need to be recognized and noticed. And it's more obvious with loud people, right? Center of attention people. Center of attention people walk into a room with brash loudness demanding to be noticed. 
Quiet side of the room people do the same thing with silent judgment of everyone else who's not noticing them. But both the loud and the quiet want to be noticed and recognized. Loud people may enter a room and and say, people must know who I am. They need my input and my opinion. Quiet people might be in that same room saying silently, why don't people want my input and opinion? Don't they care who I am? Both of us, the loud and the quiet, need recognition. We're desperate to be noticed by people. We want to matter. And on top of that, we have this deep need in our search for greatness. We have this need for success. That's how our culture defines greatness. Not just status and honor, but we define it by success, and so we're always comparing ourselves to one another. Paul in Romans says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I had a pastor friend tell me once, it's easy to mourn with those who mourn. When somebody is sad, it's easy to be like, I'm so sorry. But when somebody is rejoicing, it means they've succeeded and you may or may not want to rejoice with them. It's easy to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing if their success is not a threat to mine. But it's hard to be happy for somebody else's success if it's in the same area as ours. If if I find out through social media or somebody telling me that that a friend has finished top three in some race, top three in their category, the marathon or triathlon, I I can celebrate with them. That's great. I'm so proud of you. Somebody makes partner in their firm. Somebody is having their fourth kid. I am so glad for you. This is amazing. Somebody says, I think that guy's a great preacher. I'm thinking, he's not that good. (laughs) I think you just like the English accent. (laughs) It's overrated. Don't get hung up on that. When it's something you care about, it's hard to rejoice with those who are rejoicing because we think we're always comparing ourselves to one another. You know, we don't just love running or studying or sales for the sake of it. We love it in order to be better than others at it. And if we're not, then we don't know if we matter. We have a need to be important. We have a need to matter. And the Bible has a term for this. It's called glory. G-L-O-R-Y, glory, meaning significance. And actually, it literally means weightiness or heaviness. It's an immovable mover. It's the object bigger than other objects. We want to be the big object in the room. We want to be weighty, significant, lasting. But the problem is we seek our significance and purpose, our glory on our own and apart from God. We look for our meaning, for our glory, our weightiness in the approval of social circles or in having family or in our work accomplishments. And the problem is wherever we are trying to find our glory and our weightiness is when somebody enters the room who is better at it than us. Somebody who is faster or prettier or wealthier or better in your job 
somebody who's funnier in your social circles. Whatever it is where you find your meaning, somebody else enters the space and they're better at it than you, and you shrink. You're knocked off your feet, or you become vicious because you've got to fight for your place. We are constantly seeking glory and weight in anything we can. If not, why, why are we so upset if we're not invited to something? If not, why is it we're always sizing people up, making snap judgments of them? If we're not seeking glory in something else, why is it we're so defensive when somebody is addressing some area of our life? We are desperate to matter and we seek our significance apart from God. And we see every other person as either an asset to build up my glory or a threat to my glory. We have a need to prove we matter and deserve to be loved. But no person or career or achievement you can get can fill the depths of your need for glory and love. In the world, fame and wealth and success, or in the ancient world, status and honor were the path to glory. But in Christ, in his kingdom, the way of the cross is the path to true and lasting glory. In Mark 10, and we're not supposed to be reading Mark 10 until next week, we have a parallel passage to what happens here. In Mark 10, verses 33 to 34, Jesus is a third time with his disciples. He says, here's what I have come to do. I'm going to lay it out very clearly. I've told you twice in Mark 8, again in Mark 9. Here we go, even more detail this time in Mark 10. I am going to be, we're going to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be delivered into the hands of the leaders. They will condemn me to death. I will be mocked and spit upon. They will flog me and they will kill me. And after three days, I will rise from the dead. And the very next verses, James and John are saying, okay, Jesus, enough about you. Let's talk about us. Where are we going to sit in glory? I mean, you keep getting us on the downer thing. What about the future? Where do we get to sit? What about us? The rest of the disciples hear this in verse 41, and they are indignant. Again, you're in a room full of third graders. It's not fair. His ice cream is bigger than mine. Look, I, 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 you both got a cup of ice cream. I don't know. Jesus does not do what the rest of us would do. He doesn't say, Larry, Mo, Curly, come here. Across the head. He says, come here. Let me explain it to you again. Do you want to be great? Be a servant. Do you want to be first? Be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served. I did not come to be served. I am the Lord of the universe. I am the Messiah. I am the King. And I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Jesus is God Almighty, 
but he does not use his status and his glory for his own advantage. He lays it down, humbling himself, serving humanity, giving up his life on the cross as a ransom. And that word ransom is a payment made to set somebody free from bondage. A payment to set somebody free from slavery. Jesus offers his life to set us free from sin and from death and from our desperate needs. Why? Because he loves us. Jesus gives his life for us, not because we're great, but because he loves us. And because we are loved by a God who dies for us, we are freed from the need for recognition. We can be freed from the need for status or fame or trying to find love in every other person or thing. We can be freed from the need to prove that we matter because Christ died for us. The gospel abolishes cultures, every culture's values and every human category, radically redefining what matters and why we matter. Traditional societies said your family name matters, your social standing matters, having status and honor matter. Modern culture says wealth matters, success matters, popularity and fame matters. They're the people who are in. The struggling, the addicted, the not very successful, they're out. But the gospel, the gospel says everyone's out. But anyone can come in. Every one of us is sinful and needy and helpless. But in Christ, any of us can be forgiven, loved, accepted. And Jesus is saying it's about the cross. Walking in the way of the cross, Jesus is telling his disciples, in Christ-like humility and selflessness and love and sacrifice for one another is the way to true greatness, to true glory. But the cross of Christ is the only way we can get there. Let's pray. God, our Father, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to lay down his life for us. And you call us to walk in the way of the cross, to lay down our pride, our selfishness, our need for glory, to lay it down before your cross for your sake and your glory. In your name we pray, amen.